You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Brad Wilcox. My guest today is Brad Wilcox. He's the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. His research has been featured in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, NBC's The Today Show, and many other media outlets. He earned his PhD from Princeton University. He's held fellowship, research fellowships at Princeton University, Yale University, and the Brookings Institution. That's quite a list. Brad, thank you so much for giving us your time. It's good to be here, John. Thanks. Your research is very wide uh, and uh, very well put together. Uh, But if we could open up, you recently wrote, and I'm quoting, when it comes to confronting some of our most serious problems, from child poverty to school failure to mass incarceration, one of the biggest factors driving these problems cannot be uttered in our national conversation. You were talking about, for want of a better term, the F word, right? family. Yeah. Sure. Why is it, because this is common right across the West now, that family is such a forbidden topic uh, when diagnosing these social maladies? Uh, right. and, and, and why is that such a serious problem in your view? Yes, I mean, it is striking, I think, both in the US and Australia as well, that you know, when we're kind of addressing things like poverty and crime and opportunity and whatnot, that we're kind of reluctant to sort of talk publicly about the role that families play in all of these topics. And what we see here in the United States, for instance, is that when Raj Chetty is one of our, our top economists at Harvard, was looking at what's sort of the, the best predictor of mobility for poor kids in terms of what factor lifts poor kids up and into adulthood, into sort of the upper class at kind of the community level, what he found was it wasn't uh, inequality. That wasn't the biggest factor. It wasn't sort of school quality. It wasn't race, um, but it was family structure. That was sort of the best predictor um, that he found in, in his research. And yet this kind of finding is mainly ignored in our, in our newspapers and our media outlets and in our universities as well. It's kind of like the family elephant in the room. Everyone kind of knows it's there, but no one wants to kind of talk about it. They sort of, just, they sort of circle around it. I think that's the case for a couple of reasons. I think one thing that's obviously very important here is that since the 1970s, there's been a dramatic increase in what we call expressive individualism. It's this idea that kind of like what makes you feel good is the most important thing. What makes you happy is the most important thing. And so kind of older notions of sort of family um, stability, the importance of sort of sacrificing for your marriage and for your kids, um, kind of in some ways um, were questioned uh, because people were kind of putting a priority on this more individualistic approach. I think that's one reason why we don't want to talk about family because it means often we have to sacrifice in some important way uh, for our marriage, for our kids, uh, for our parents. Um, So I think that's one thing. I think a second thing that's really important here is there's also been a kind of, particularly again, since the 60s, a kind of anti-traditionalism that's sort of afoot. And people kind of think that sort of the newest thing, the most progressive thing is the best thing, you know, that change by its very nature is a good thing. Um, And so, again, that has certain implications for how you think about, you know, what's gone on in our families uh, since the 1960s. And the third thing that I would say is there's a kind of um, a kind of Marxism that's afoot. Um, And what I mean by that is kind of an assumption that you know, what really matters when it comes to family life is economics. And that if we kind of get all of our economic factors aligned correctly, then family life will kind of just, you know, go well. Um, And that assumption, which is also often aligned with the idea that sort of the state must play an important role in securing the economic foundations of family life, you know, makes people often kind of reluctant to sort of uh, think deeply or consider, um, you know, seriously how much, you know, marriage, stable family life, you know, play an important role in securing both the economic dimensions of family life and just, you know, the quality of family life um, more generally as well. So those are, I think, three things that help to kind of explain why we're often reluctant to confront the family factor in public discourse. I'm often asked by the media in Australia when there's a mass shooting in America what I think. 
Right. And I'm asked that because I was part of a government that introduced gun laws in Australia. Uh, even now, sometimes uh, controversial in a way. Uh, but uh, I've a couple of times said to the journalists, part of the problem I think is, that we need to address is that nearly every one of those nearly always young men that have committed right. those atrocities, if you look at it, they've had a seriously dysfunctional environment that they've grown up in, which has left them sure. badly damaged. Right. I, I suppose I'm asking you a sort of question. Is that... Uh, yeah, so we, I mean, we do see now that in terms of the mass shootings in the US, there's obviously a lot going on in terms of our own gun culture and, and gun policies. Uh, mental health intersects obviously in a big way with, with this in the United States. Um, I think also kind of an inability to sort of give our young men a kind of a clear and constructive model of masculinity. But it's also, I think, the case, too, that you often see that there's some kind of, you know, absent father or family dysfunction that's at play as well. Um, and when you look kind of beyond just the sort of the mass shootings to sort of crime more generally in the United States, violent crime in particular, what you do see is there's a lot of empirical evidence indicating that young men who've grown up without their fathers in the household are more likely to have difficulty with the law, they're more likely to be imprisoned, incarcerated, they're more likely to be suspended or expelled in our schools. Um, so there's a very strong connection just more generally between sort of family breakdown, if you will, and young men struggling on a number of fronts, um, including when it comes to um, you know, any number of criminal activity as well. Yeah, I, I was looking at some numbers the other day and I gather since the mid-70s, the American population's roughly doubled, but the number of people who are in jail has gone up by about 750%, quite staggering. And overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, they're men. There does seem to be a real problem. Right. So starting in the late 60s and especially in the 70s, just a huge up upsurge in violent crime and murder in the United States. And then it came down in part because so many young men were incarcerated. And of course, now we've seen an uptick again in violent crime and in, in murder in the US. Um, and that's actually a topic I'm investigating with some colleagues in terms of what's the connection there between family and crime. But in general, we do see in the US a, a very strong association between um, violent criminal activity, incarceration, and, um, and young men growing up in homes without their fathers. My real point here being that it's, it's as you said, we don't want to talk about the impact of family structures and the environment in which people grow up in right. as a factor here. It's, it's as though it's taboo. And yet I think it would be very helpful if we were to be more honest and to talk about it more. Right. And again, I think the, probably the most fundamental reason it's taboo is that, you know, all of us have, you know, you know, have failed in some way in our families. Yeah. Um, all of us know folks who have messed up their marriages. Um, and it's, I think it's difficult for us to kind of confront this reality. But I think it's still, it's still necessary. And we could do more, I think, um, you know, as, as a culture, uh, more as individuals, uh, more on the policy front to kind of give um, parents and adults kind of the, the skills, the norms and the incentives that they need to kind of do better on the family front. Coming back to uh, a more immediate issue, we're still coming out, I guess, of the whole social upheaval created by COVID. Right. And in Australia in particular, I, I, Americans talk about it a lot, uh, in some of our bigger cities, some very tough lockdown policies and so forth were put in place. I suspect, and I just, I'm seeking your views on this, that the whole impact on on uh, employment, education, social life, family life—it's been quite profound. Right. How how would you see um, the impact that the, the whole COVID experience has had on family and marriage? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things one could say. One is that um, as we kind of look at the data, at least in the United States, um, there's a number of different kind of academic pieces indicating that married families navigated kind of the lockdowns more successfully than did single adults. And on the one level, it seems like obvious, but I think just sort of, it's worth, I think, underlying that in a day and age, we can tend to sort of devalue <laughs> the importance of marriage and the importance of family, actually having your own community, you know, on the home front there with you and for you is important. And I, and I would sort of speculate kind of even beyond COVID that in a world that's increasingly economically unequal, in a world where we spend too much time on screens and not enough time in person, um, and in a world where we could see more pandemics, you know, having a family 
you know, that you're living with, um, I think will become more and more valuable. You know, having a spouse there um, to be with you and for you is, I think, more and more valuable going forward. Now, in terms of other things about kind of COVID and marriage, what we saw is that there was a decline both in, in divorce and in marriage in 2020 in the United States. We've seen an uptick in, um, in marriages um, in 2021 as people kind of recovering and this year as well, 2022. And how it's going to kind of fall out for divorce is not entirely clear. Um, what we did see about you know, 12 years ago with the Great Recession was that in the middle of the Great Recession, people kind of hunkered down um, and divorced less. And then once the recession lifted, there was a bit of an uptick in divorce. And then after that, divorce came down yet again. So divorce kind of overall is down in the U.S. And I think that's in part because people recognize that kind of in the face of some major social tumult, major social trauma, it's, you know, it's good to kind of stick with your spouse. But it remains to be seen how this will kind of play out in the next couple of years with respect to sort of COVID. Um, and it could be that, again, folks appreciate how much it matters to have a spouse in the corner. But for, of course, some couples, kind of the intensity of being together, um, lockdown was uh, was too much uh, for their marriage. So we'll, we'll see, I think, in the next year or two, how this all plays out in terms of marriage um, stability and also kind of people entering into marriages as well. You wrote uh, in 2019, uh, or you co-wrote, that uh, Shifting family patterns can have profound economic consequences, fueling poverty, insecurity, and inequality. And a moment ago, indeed, you made the comment that family structures have a huge impact on social mobility. Right. Um, now, by shifting family patterns, I, I'd imagine you're talking to some extent at least about what we might have called fairly recently um, uh, broken homes. Sure. Um, could you go into a, you know, a bit more detail about your thinking of the, the legacy of the breaking of homes, of sure. divorce you know, on and, family and, members and society. Sure, one, I think one point to make here is that um, people often assume the family is kind of like this private thing. You know, it's just sort of, it's you, your girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, and kids, and that's about it. Um, kind of, you know, in the American kind of center, it was like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Kind of what happens in the home stays in the home. But what the science actually tells us is that what happens in our homes doesn't just stay in our homes. It kind of it bleeds over into our neighborhoods and our schools and our communities and, and our states and our country. Um, and so what that means practically then in response to your question is that when families are flourishing, um, you know, communities are flourishing as well. States are flourishing as well. And so um, my research suggests with Robert Lerman at the Urban Institute here in Washington, D.C. and with Joseph Price, an economist, um, is that Basically, states with more married parents see markedly higher growth rates than other states that don't have as many married parents, um, have much lower rates of child poverty, and also have higher rates of what we call economic mobility. That's a sort of rags to riches mobility over the life course for you know kids growing up in those states. So these are kind of just some examples of the way in which how when families are flourishing, both kids and adults are more likely to be flourishing as well um, in both kind of you know the educational context um, and then later on the you know the economic context and um, you know that's worth noting of course the other point to make here is that unfortunately we've seen I think this is true in Australia as well is that sort of marriage has kind of lost ground has retreated the most among working class and poor Americans yeah. and so what that means practically of course um, both economically and socially is that that leaves poor and working class adults and kids doubly disadvantaged um, so they've got less economic resources, you know, coming into the household because dads are often now absent from those households. Um, and they've got, you know, fewer parents on scene to help the kids navigate school. Um, and, you know, their sons are more likely to have difficulty with the police. You know, daughters have more difficulty with things like a teenage pregnancy. Um, and it just reinforces, again, the sort of larger economic and social divide playing out in, in our countries um, because the family is more fragile for working class and poor Americans. I think also that's true, for, again, for Australians as well. Something you said there uh, made me uh, stop and think. You, you can actually assess state by state in America, can you? The, that some states yes. have stronger right. marriage structures, uh, right. commitments uh, than others. Correct, yeah. So there's a, you know, a lot of heterogeneity. Uh, places like Utah have you know, quite stable families, true for Nebraska as well. 
Uh, places like you know New Mexico and Louisiana, um, South Carolina have um, have high rates of family instability. So that difference allows us to kind of figure out how um, our differences and these sort of broader ecological patterns of family life then link to a variety of social and educational and economic outcomes. Um, you know, at this sort of aggregate level. But the point here is that again, families don't just matter for individual adults um, and kids they matter for the larger social environment. And we often, I think, fail to kind of recognize that in the current political and cultural context. Flow on question, to what extent has that been the result of those states being culturally different for historical reasons? And to what extent is it because of different government policies pursued in those states? Can you, any, yeah, any thinking I mean, I around think, that? Um, Does government policy have an effect on family structures and community harmony? So I think a lot of these differences are, are deeply rooted in cultural patterns, including religion, as you can, you know, obviously the, our number one state is, um, is the Mormon state of Utah. So that's certainly part of the story there. Um, you can think though too, com the, sort of the longer impact of a very kind of perverse law, and that of course is the whole law around slavery in the United States. So when you look at in which regions is sort of the family most fragile in America, it's in those counties where slavery was most salient. Um, so you can kind of look at the Mississippi Delta, for instance. Um, and that's an expression in some ways of obviously both culture, but also of, of law. Um, but then more recently, I, you, know, you can certainly look at, um, there's been work done by economists at MIT, for instance, um, showing how the first states to pass no-fault divorce um, were the states that saw their kids' sort of educational attainment come down, um, you know, more quickly than states that did not pass no-fault divorce uh, law. So um, that's an example of how kind of family policies at the state level were then reflected um, later on in, in this case, kids' educational performance. That really is interesting. After all this time, the slavery intense states, if I can put it that way, are still showing uh, different patterns. Yeah, it's, it's, it's much more actually kind of discreet. I mean, there is um, actually a, a, you know, a piece published in National Review by Senator Mike Lee just geographically laying out these patterns in terms of where slavery was most common and then patterns where single parenthood is, you know, is most common. And it maps out you know, very closely. And again, it does suggest that sort of in one ways the, the unique American sin is, is our legacy, our history of slavery, and that's continued to kind of have an, uh, an effect on our current uh, American family life. Extraordinary. Yeah. To move to the issue of happiness, contentedness, and what it has to do with family structures, yeah. I'm interested that you recently wrote an article, The Surprising Case for Marrying Young. And your own research found that couples who cohabitated were 15% more likely to get divorced than those who did not. Um, and I'd be interested in you telling us a bit more about the advantages of people considering earlier marriage in right. an age when most people are delaying it right. quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think you turn on almost any show these days that's sort of focusing on your on young adults, and there's kind of like this narrative about waiting until you're about 30 to start, you know, getting serious about finding a spouse and, and settling down. And that's really kind of the view that I see among a lot of my students at the University of Virginia, kind of that idea that we should wait to our, you know, our late 20s to kind of look to get married. Um, so the surprising thing is when you actually look at the research um, on marital happiness, it looks like folks that kind of get married, roughly speaking, in their mid-20s report the most happiness um, in their marriages. And then some work that I do with Lyman Stone, who's a demographer and an economist, indicates that in the United States anyways, couples who are getting married in their 20s, or actually women getting married in their 20s, got a big sample of women, um, and who don't cohabit prior to marriage, had some of the lowest divorce rates in, you know, in our study in, in, in that survey. So it suggests that um, at least kind of today, uh, folks who are getting married in their, in their 20s, um, you know, mid-20s, roughly speaking, and are doing so without cohabiting prior to marriage, um, have a pretty good shot at being both happily married and stably married. And you know, this runs against, again, this conventional wisdom that getting married in your 20s is um, you know, an un unwise idea. And I think what's happening here is at least um, two things. One is that couples who are getting married in their 20s 
are able to kind of grow together, you know, and this is sort of more of a more of a cornerstone model of marriage and less of what's called now a capstone model. So they can kind of they can develop, you know, common traditions in the household, um, common sort of expectations about what their kind of you know family and work future looks like. Um, I think that's part of it. But then I think the other part of this story here is they're not kind of accumulating a lot of different relationships um, before getting married. And what we see in the research is that, you know, in many domains of life, more experience is better. So more teaching, you know, more playing tennis, you know, more throwing the football, um, more playing the piano tends to make you a better, you know, teacher, um, a better tennis player, a better football player, a better pianist. But when it comes to marriage, it's a very different story. The more experiences you have with serious relationships prior to marriage, um, the worse you do. And so I think, you know, not having had, you know, lots of partners before marriage um, makes people, I think, probably less likely to sort of critically compare their spouse to some, you know, prior um, boyfriend or some prior girlfriend. And that also, I think, helps to explain why folks are kind of getting married directly um, without cohabiting, you know, in their mid-20s tend to be more likely to flourish. But again, it is a kind of surprising finding for a lot of young adults today. I can imagine a lot of people would be surprised. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Um, you've done a lot, a lot of work, actually, on this issue of younger Americans and their state of mind, their happiness. Sure. And you've looked at the influence of a number of things uh, on on their happiness. I understand that there's, there's quite a low level of, relatively speaking, of satisfaction with life of people saying, I'm really enjoying my life now compared to the historical norm. Yeah. So Lyman Stone and I, again, in the, in the Atlantic wrote a piece on kind of the decline in happiness among young adults. And um, we attribute that in part to less religion, in part to less marriage, and in part also to less sex. Um, and, you know, if you had told me like even five years ago that I'd be worrying about young adults not having sex, I would have laughed you out of the room. But we are seeing kind of like this amazing pattern, um, both in the U.S., of course, and even more so in Eastern Asia and Japan, for instance, and South Korea, for instance, where for a variety of reasons, young adults are not having sex. Um, and um, I think it's sort of it's it's partly a reflection of the fact that people are spending just much more time on screens um, and less time in person, you know, socializing, less time in person dating and less and time in person, of course, being married. Um, and so all these factors have kind of combined. But, you know, again, um, we are social animals. And so things like being involved in a religious community, uh, you know, being married, being in a relationship, um, you know, having sex, these things are all, you know, linked to young adults um, being more likely to flourish. And that that in-person socializing on a variety of different levels and, and ways is, is less common today than it would have been 10 or 20 years ago. What does it say about the sexual liberation movement of the 1960s that we've now got to a point where yeah. people are having not more sex, but less sex? Yeah, that's the big irony, right? That we're kind of, we're celebrating, if you will, the sort of 50, you know, well, uh, sort of now it's sort of the 54th anniversary in a sense of the sexual revolution. And, um, and we're seeing, you know, a dramatic decline in sex. It, it's quite striking. Um, I think in part what's happening here is that um, when you kind of take out all the norms around sort of sex and dating and courtship, um, it becomes more difficult for some young adults to navigate that, um, both kind of in terms of dating and marriage and also in terms of sex. But I think it's also the case that the sort of the new technologies that were, you know, that were... Um, we're using especially smartphones um, are, you know, leading to a, a, a dramatic decline in in-person socializing, and that's one of the factors in play as well. Uh, your your research, I, I was quite struck by what appeared to me to be the moderate importance of religion to people feeling satisfied with their lives, yeah. the the moderate importance of a couple of other factors, but sure. the very high importance of having sex. Right, and here's the irony. Right, it's it's the married, Folks younger people married who yeah. are, who are having the most sex, sure, and that's yeah. playing into their happiness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's one finding. I don't want to make a mountain out of you know one particular study that we that we did, but it is striking that sex was a you know a big factor in the story. Um, you know, so yes, I think um, again the irony is that none of us I think would have predicted you know again five or ten years ago that we'd be sort of um, beginning to worry about the decline of sex among adults um, uh, 
but here we are. Mm. Life's a strange beast. It's not quite what yeah. it looks to be on the surface. Sure. Yeah. Uh, another issue, I, I, I'm amazed at how often I hear uh, women saying this, uh, when it comes to marriage, uh, understandably, a girl wants to find a good man. Sure. Right. And then you hear them say, but where are all the good men? Right. There right. may, in fact, be sound reasons, mm-hmm. I think, for them asking that question. Right. Research suggests that a lot of young men really are struggling to find their feet in yes. an age uh, when um, the job market's changing. It's starting to, I'm going to be very careful here, but it is, the emerging jobs are starting to provide real opportunities, more for perhaps, or more real opportunities, put it that way, for women. Um, boys are not doing as well at school. They right. seem to be suffering more with family breakdown, if I can put it that way. More of them are going to jail. Sure. So yeah, and I think so maybe there's something yeah. in this idea so that no, there is a shortage of good men. We do see at my own university about fifty-six percent of the the students now are male. Sorry, are female, and about forty-four percent um, are male. And we're seeing, you know, across the country, um, women dominating kind of academic, you know, achievement. Um, kind of contests in their middle schools, high schools, and being much more likely to uh, both matriculate and graduate from college and graduate programs. And uh, we are seeing a growing number of of young men who are not in the labor force in the U.S. as well. Um, So there are a lot of, you know, young men who are floundering. Of course, Jordan Peterson's success is an example. I think part of there's a lot of young men are kind of looking around for, you know, models, ideas, um, and, and, Peterson had some, I think, some really powerful things to say to young men. So, um, but in terms of what's driving this, I think um, part of the story is we don't offer a constructive model of masculinity to our teenage guys and young men. Well, they hardly need to go out and slay dragons to look after their women folk and their children anymore. Well, that's part of it. But I'm just sort of saying, like, you know, there's the pop culture. The schools don't really offer much in the way of kind of a, of a constructive model of how one could be a, a, a dragon slayer of sorts in the 21st century. Um, you know, we also know that young men who are growing up without their fathers are more likely to be struggling in school and in work and with the, and with the police, um, which is part of the story here as well. Um, and then I think there's also, um, you know, a way in which the new economy often makes guys, particularly guys who are not in the college track, feel like they don't have, you know, a, a good future um, uh, economically, a good future professionally. So. These are some of the factors that are, you know, I think making it more difficult for, you know, boys and young men to flourish. I guess I also would add to just the way in which our schools tend to prioritize a more kind of feminine style of, of schooling. They don't tend to give, I think, boys enough time for, um, you know, recess, being out, you know, outside. Um, they tend to kind of minimize risky activities at school. Um, at least in the U.S. context, and tend to kind of promote activities and, and forms of learning, forms of pedagogy that are often more suited, I think, to young women than to young men. So all of these things, I think, have created a context where um, we're less boy-friendly, less male-friendly than we used to be. And what people don't always realize is that means that there are fewer men who are kind of marriageable, you know, um, because they haven't gotten the, the training in school, they don't have the opportunities in the workforce that would make them attractive candidates for, for marriage. And so I see it at my own institution at, at the University of Virginia, a lot of young women coming into my office and you know, expressing concern about the lack of, of available men that they could sort of date and um, imagine a future with. And that's sort of one way in which I think this failure to sort of serve the needs of boys and men ends up actually hurting women as well. This is interesting, isn't it? Because in one way, the first thought that comes to my mind is, is the idea that if what you've got here is a situation where it's terrific, the girls are doing well, sure. but if the boys are not doing well, that's bad for the boys. But there's a whole lot of girls out there too who are finding it hard to find a, the right person to share their lives with. Yeah, so I mean, so yeah, exactly, yeah. if one right. sex is not doing well, neither right. sex is reaching their optimal sort of level of happiness and contentment and Right. Uh, and meaning. Because again, we're social animals, to use Aristotle's term, mm-hmm. and, and because we're social animals, if women can't find um, young men um, or men to, you know, to date and to marry and to form a life with, um, that's going to make them, on average, a lot less happy. 
Um, it's going to deprive them of opportunities to find um, a unique form of meaning in life as a, as a wife and mother. Um, it's going to be implicated probably too in, in lower levels of childbearing and you know um, family formation. So um, there are a whole bunch of ways in which what happens to men ends up having a, a pretty big impact on women and, and families more generally as well. We get a lot of talk about toxic masculinity and I want to say up front that that I think there are a heck of a lot of really decent young men out there mm -hmm. who feel troubled and affronted and alienated by the idea that their masculinity is toxic. And I think they're the people who go to hear Jordan Peterson um, because they're struggling with that. They're saying, I don't want to be toxic. I want to be a decent human right. being. Right. We'll come to the ones that are toxic in a moment. Sure. Um, but I do think this is very damaging, this, this sort of blanket assertion that that, that sometimes seems to imply, it seems to be out there right. that, that men are just inherently toxic and somehow we've got to develop programs to demasculize right. them. Yeah, so again, I think one of our challenges today is we're actually not giving our young men a kind of constructive model of masculinity. And so they tend to you know, retreat either into the basement um, or into you know, other forms of antisocial um, kind of hyper-masculine behavior that's not good um, and it actually is toxic. But I think if we kind of gave them a more constructive model of what it means to be a man in the 21st century, we would avoid some of these problems. Um, but to kind of follow up on your point, I think it's no doubt as well, too, that there is toxic forms of masculinity, which we do see in, say, you know, spiking crime rates in the U.S. Um, we do see in terms of things like domestic violence. And it's, I think, important to note it's often when men are failing to kind of be integrated into our core institutions that they act in toxic ways. So if they're failing in school, if they are not married, if they're not gainfully employed, they're often more likely to, for instance, engage in domestic violence. So we know that, for instance, rates of domestic violence are much higher among cohabiting couples than they're among married couples. They're higher for men who are unemployed than for men who are employed. So again, I think men are more likely to flourish on average when they're embedded in core institutions, institutions like marriage and work. And when they're not, they're more likely to succumb to a kind of toxic form of masculinity. In, is it in part that we don't provide, both provide opportunities for men, young men to exercise responsibility and expect them to step up and accept responsibility? We sort of, we don't do adulting anymore. Yeah, I think we don't do Isn't adulting enough about in general. Yeah, across the board. I mean, I think, you know, this is true for young adults, both female and male. But I think we, it's especially the case that we're not doing enough to kind of basically scaffold the transition into adult masculinity for our young men. You know, of course, across time and space, most cultures have had strong rites of passage that have taken you know, teenage boys basically and ushered them into adulthood um, and then given them kind of like a to-do list. You know, this is what you've got to do as an adult male. And we don't do enough of that today in our, in our contemporary culture. We've been uh, on, the, on the horrific issue of family violence or of uh, domestic violence. Um, there's been a bit of controversy in Australia built around some research done in America. And I not sure about the quality of the research all the way, and it was interpreted in Australia, genuinely uncertain, but an attempt to link, particularly in sections of the media that are hostile to Christianity, a link between um, conservative ideas uh, of gender roles, um, right, uh, and and sure, what have you, uh, and 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 domestic violence. It's an area I understand you've done quite a so bit I, of research. Yeah, in my in my. In my book on sort of religion and family life for, for American men, what I found was that uh, men who were basically nominal evangelicals or nominal conservative Protestants were the most likely to be um, reporting domestic violence, whereas men who were um, attending church regularly as conservative Protestants or as evangelicals had the lowest reports of domestic violence. Um, and, you know, don't know entirely what's sort of happening there. But I think one possibility is that men who are kind of exposed to sort of, you know, Christian or religious um, notions of sort of patriarchy and authority um, in a very kind of, um, you know, thin way, um, in a very kind of, you know, cursory way, um, could take that as a sort of a license to be authoritarian or abusive. 
to uh, justify their yeah, own. justify their own bad behavior or just their desire to lord it over um you know a wife or a girlfriend and kids um so i think that's certainly part of the story there um but at least in the u.s context in the data that i was looking at men who were engaged in religious communities where you know they're encouraged to kind of be of service um where there's some kind of accountability you know in their religious community where they're seeing other husbands kind of um you know making an effort to be good uh, good fathers and good spouses um seem to have you know a lower risk on that front um so i think that's you know that's noteworthy we've also seen kind of in, in newer research in the united states that when you're looking at kind of men and housework on the home front we're seeing that religious men um, are now reporting the highest levels of domestic work, you know, childcare, you know, doing dishes, things like that. Um, and I think this is kind of a, a reflection of this sort of new recognition that the family is in, in important ways under threat. And so as husbands and fathers, we need to kind of step up and do more to help out on the home front. But I think, you know, anyone who's been involved in a religious context, um, knows that, you know, domestic violence is a reality. And I think, you know, we could do more both from the pulpit and other contexts to kind of communicate the message that A, that's not acceptable, and B, that if you're having difficulties in your marriage, there are resources out there um, that you can, you know, plug into to, um, uh, to you know, strengthen and improve uh, your marriage as well. I think it's fair to say that there'd be a broad view in modern society that people who take their religious faith seriously are uptight and probably less happy and uh, less free right. uh, than uh, those who have discarded those old superstitions. Sure. Your right. research suggests something quite different, yeah. that people who take faith seriously mm -hmm. uh, right. uh, actually record higher levels of happiness, right. including uh, women. Right, sure. Uh, in... in, in um, deeply faithful uh, households. Yeah, you know, actually I was just reading a, another study this morning um, and found this is a study of British women that uh, more religious British women, um, you know, reported more uh, sexual desire than their less religious peers, which is kind of another sort of part of this puzzle. But to kind of answer your question, we do see um, that religious, um, in, the, in the US context, Americans are happier in their marriages and report more sexual satisfaction. And both on the sort of on the sexual satisfaction side of the, of the ledger and on the marital happiness sort of outcomes, we see that religious women who attend um, church with their husbands are are doing the best. And I think that that's in some ways surprising because we've had kind of like this whole idea in, in the U.S. of sort of like there was a this famous show called Saturday Night Live, and they had this sort of skit um, with with the church lady, and she was a very uptight, kind of prudish, you know, probably Southern woman. Um, and I think one could get kind of the, the sort of sense from this um, pop cultural perspective that, you know, religious women are, um, again, sort of dour and un unhappy and, and, you know, uptight. But I think there's something about the, um, the sense of security and trust um, engendered in a religious marriage on average. Um, the commitment to things like you know, forgiveness um, that end up translating into higher quality relationships and even higher quality sexual relationships. And so what we're seeing kind of in general in the research is sort of what happens outside of the bedroom ends up mattering for what happens inside the bedroom and one of those things that happens outside of the bedroom in some context, of course, is a sort of a strong faith and a strong religious community. And couples who have the benefit of, of those kinds of things um, are more likely to be flourishing in the, in the bedroom as well, I think, because, you know, their, um, their sense of commitment and trust and emotional security then kind of feed into a stronger sexual relationship as well. So that's, I think, for some folks, that's kind of surprising. Coming to the impacts of social media, uh, it's one of the things that's really changed rapidly with the advent of the smartphone in particular, I would have thought. Right. Uh, and uh, I hear a lot of educators saying that they are really dangerous. You yourself uh, and also uh, Jonathan Haidt and, and Greg uh, Lukanoff in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, right. you know, you've been warning us of the real dangers here. Uh, you point out, and I think in one of your pieces, that between 2011 and 2016, 
uh, social media smartphones, really, I guess, right. really hit the, 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 the marketplace. Sleep deprivation but among US teens increased by 17%. And sleep deprivation right. is very significant, for example, in depression. Then there's anxiety over body image and bullying. There's predators, there's sure. pornography. Mm -hmm. I mean, to some extent, you'd think letting your kid take a mobile phone to school is like letting them take a machete to school. Um, how do we handle yeah. this? What do we know about the mental health sure. impacts of social media on children? Yeah, I mean, I think there's obviously a lot of controversy among academics about how much, you know, the smartphones have played a role in, you know, helping to fuel this sort of spiking trend in anxiety, spiking trend in depression, spiking trend in suicide um, in, you know, in many contexts. Um, and I, from the way that I kind of read the research, I think that social media per se has been a, a big part of this um, because it promotes, as you were saying, kind of like this sort of spirit of comparison, like, you know, you you never measure up to you know your peers online because they're always presenting the best stuff online to you. And so that's, I think, part of the story. Um, there's other kinds of material online that's, that's toxic in one way or another, um, whether it's in terms of pornography or violent or whatever else it might be. Um, and then the other piece too is that you know, we all need a, a good you know, seven, eight hours of sleep a, a night and you know, our teenagers need even more sleep. And of course, if you give a kid an, you know, an iPhone, um, and you don't kind of collect it at 10 o'clock at night, um, they're often going to just spend, you know, hours, um, you know, scrolling through a screen. And the problem with that in part is that it makes people much more likely to be vulnerable to depression when they don't get enough sleep. So here's just some of the different things that our smartphones, I think, have, have done to sort of reduce the emotional um, and the social welfare of our, of our teenagers, um, both in the U.S. and probably also in Australia as well. Any sort of particular thoughts on your part as to what uh, schools uh, and indeed even um, you know, uh, uh, political forces ought to try and do in so, this area? Yeah, are, I are there it, helpful steps we could take? Well, I, I mean, and I don't know, but certainly schools should basically prohibit, I think, you know, phones obviously during class and maybe give kids just sort of discrete times, you know, maybe, you know, during just before lunch, whatever, to sort of check in with their parents, whatever else it might be, or, you know, a study break, but just sort of have them have the phones kind of basically out of the school. I think it's always constructive. Um, and our kids have been in schools that have very different policies, but the schools that have the sort of the, the most strict policies seem to have the best, um, you know, social environment for, you know, for the kids. Uh, and then policymakers, I think, could do more to um, circumscribe the, the role of phones in the lives of, of of kids. So one idea would be kind of to shut down social media for kids uh, from say 10 o'clock in the evening to seven in the morning or something in that, in that, you know, framework to address the sleep issue. Um, another idea would be to require social media companies to get the permission of parents. Um, and there are ways now to do that, you know, uh, through verification processes um, that are fairly straightforward now online. So um, I think that would kind of reduce the number of platforms that kids have access to and give parents more more opportunities to sort of, um, you know, um, scan their kids' social media um, sites as well. Um, and then to sort of really do a better job of age verification for pornography as well, at least for, and there are some, you know, some sites that are easily identifiable and kind of make sure that those are um, much more removed from kids' access would be good. So these are the kinds of things we could do, kind of common sense reforms to kind of rein in big tech to some extent when it comes to our kids. Finally, uh, if I could, um, do you have any thoughts on um, those who, are, and, and the, you know, I'm sure it's a huge number of people in our communities who are committed to their marriages but wondering how to strengthen them and keep them fresh, those sorts of things, um, because it does seem to me that all relationships require refreshing on a regular basis. Any thoughts on what that looks like, practical tips? Yeah, so we have seen, obviously, since the 1970s, a pretty dramatic uptick in divorce. Um, and so I think you have to be, you know, if you're, um, if you're married, you have to kind of be thinking about, in a sense, sort of what do I do to, <laughs> to sort of protect my marriage from divorce? And then also, what do I do to sort of make it stronger and better? Um, I think about this in terms of five different um, Cs. Um, so the first C is about communion. Uh, about a kind of we before me mentality in your marriage. And this is, I think, both kind of very practical. So things like, for instance, 
um, having a joint checking account is linked to actually better marital outcomes. It kind of forces people to kind of see their finances as kind of a we thing, not not a me thing, and to talk up through financial difficulties and challenges in ways that you know hopefully are generally constructive. Um, so that's sort of one idea on that front. But also in terms of on the emotional front for communion, I would definitely encourage couples to go on a regular date night, you know, and to, and mix it up. So doing doing novel things with your spouse, whether it's you know dancing or movies or going on a hike, whatever it might be, tends to engender a sense of romance because there's something about novelty that is is linked, um, I think, in a very profound way uh, in our brains and in our hearts with um, with with a kind of more romantic experience. So that's a one piece. The second C is about children, kind of recognizing that your marriage matters not just for you, but for your kids. And couples who have that sense that they're kind of engaged in enterprise to raise kids and then maybe raise help raise grandkids, um, I think are more likely to be flourishing with this kind of common project they're working on together as a couple. Um, the third C is about commitment, kind of recognizing that you've got to protect your marriage. And that partly is about fidelity. Um, so, you know, one sort of negative example here is a very famous Republican governor, Governor Mark Sanford, who would go away every year with his sort of college buddies, I think it was, um, you know, a bunch of guys, and they would kind of go do adventures. But these friends were not really kind of committed to uh, fidelity. Um, and so one, you know, one trip he met this woman in South America and, you know, things went from there. And then that ended up, you know, basically destroying his marriage. Um, so the point constructively is sort of like picking your friends well and and paying attention to kind of the norm of fidelity by having some degree of prudence in terms of how you relate to, to folks um, who might be attractive alternatives to your spouse. Uh, the fourth C is about cash, and it really relates to men in particular. Uh, we know that marriages where men are doing a decent job, at least in the workforce, are markedly less likely to end in divorce, whereas the woman's employment has no implication for divorce risk. So basically, kind of encouraging husbands, you know, to be um, deliberate about, you know, um, being good workers and kind of attending to their financial responsibilities on that front is is still, even in 2022, important. Um, this is based upon some Harvard research uh, done by Sasha Killewald. Uh, and the final C is about community. And we know that folks who have friends who are family-oriented are more likely to be flourishing in their marriages, and particularly friends who are religious. And I think about this in terms of three um, different factors, um, what I'd call norms, you know, people who kind of embrace norms like forgiveness, for instance, in marriage, um, often from a religious basis. Um, networks so being you know connected to other for instance religious friends is linked to better outcomes and then we call in sociology nomos a sense of like there's a there's an order out there that is um, kind of superintending your life and so when you confront things like unemployment um, the loss of a loved one or some other major uh, trauma in your life if you have a kind of a community and a nomos sort of basically gives you a sort of what we call a sacred canopy in sociology um, that lends meaning to your difficulty and to your suffering. You're much more likely to successfully navigate it and not to see your marriage dragged down by this, um, you know, this uh, this challenge, um, you know, this, the slings and arrows of, of you know of fate, so to speak. So. Um, those are kind of the five C's. Again, so it's communion, it's children, it's commitment, it's cash, and it's um, community are all factors that are linked to both stronger and uh, more stable marriages in my research. That's really valuable. There's two things I'd just like to sure. uh, say that I really picked up on there. Uh, the first was forgiveness. Um, we don't do it very well in our culture now. Sure. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in a conversation that I right. held with him before he tragically died, right, right. he said one of the things that's really destructive in our modern community now is the judgmentalism sure. uh, in this day of cancel culture. Right. Say the wrong thing, whatever, right. and the judgment is very harsh. There's no sure. mercy, there's no sure. forgiveness. Right. It seems to me that family environments and marriages in particular mm -hmm. There are going to be mistakes. There are going to be misunderstandings. If there's no forgiveness, it's it's going to be very hard right. to keep the yeah. ship in good shape, isn't it? Yeah, and there's obviously a lot of wear and tear in any long-term relationship, particularly a marriage. And so if you don't have the capacity to kind of um, both acknowledge that you've messed up 
um, and to ask for forgiveness um, from your spouse and then to have the capacity to extend forgiveness to your spouse, you know, you're probably going to fail in one way or another. That is, you're going to have a miserable marriage, or you're going to get divorced. So I think that, you know, forgiveness is just absolutely essential to kind of, um, you know, picking yourself up again um, and helping your spouse pick themselves up again as well on a kind of daily or weekly, you know, or, or regular basis in one way or another. And the other thing, uh, you've been very generous with your time, but just to close this off, but, but you said that uh, companionship. Sure. It strikes me that women are innately better at that mm -hmm. than men, particularly once they've finished university and they go out into the workforce. Men tend not to be very good at keeping a few good, close, we'd say in Australia, mates around them. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I heard a fellow I know uh, and respect, uh, an older man, say that a lot of women had said to him throughout his working life, I wish my husband had more friends. Mm -hmm. And he made the observation that, that, that women are much better at it than men, and, but that women actually wish their husbands did have deep and meaningful relationships with a few friends. Yeah, although I'd say it's, it's, you know, it's important for both husbands and wives to have some good friends outside of the marriage. And these are friends, of course, who are there for the marriage as well, not friends who are going to kind of, you know, basically from the sidelines throw rocks at the relationship. But yeah, but having kind of other outlets, um, not kind of investing all of your emotional apples in the marital basket, but kind of being able to kind of see um, and seek out, you know, other um, other needs and interests with with friends, I think is very is very valuable for um, for both wives and and husbands. And again, you're right. I think husbands have more difficulty doing that. So, but it's it's still very important. Well, thank you so very much. So somebody said to me the other day, I seem to have had training courses in everything except marriage. Yes. So I think your insights and your tips uh, are gold. And thank you very much indeed. Okay. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.